I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. An interesting confluence of dates. Six months ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. And on this day in 1991, Ukraine gained independence from the Soviet Union. Uh, the war, of course, rages on in the eastern part of the country. Uh, the capital of Kiev is uh, trying to go back to normal, whatever a new normal is there. But the question is, is what has happened over the last six months? Where are we and what comes next? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day. Think again. Uh, It's easy for a lot of the day-to-day things that are happening in Ukraine to kind of slip into the nooks and crannies of life as we focus on so many other things. Uh, But it has been six months since Russia invaded. Uh, Ironically, today is Ukraine's Independence Day. And we turn to uh, the Washington Post uh, to the Ukraine bureau chief, Isabel uh, Karshidian, excuse me, and uh, you have done a, a wonderful series over the last month with the Washington Post, with one of your colleagues, really looking at uh, what has happened, what we should be looking at, and, and what comes next. And uh, thanks for joining us uh, from Europe today. And uh, Isabel, as you've looked at this, uh, some of the interesting things uh, were just really even in the run-up uh, to Russia's invasion. What have you learned in your, in your deep dive reporting on uh, what's taken place in Ukraine and where we are today? Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, the run-up, um, I think, you know, one thing that stood out from our reporting is that the U.S. kind of struggled to get um, Ukraine and also its European allies to believe that Russia was preparing to launch a full-scale invasion, um, you know, in late February. Uh, but despite that, and, you know, despite some doubts themselves, you know, top military commanders um, on the Ukrainian side did make some advanced preparations, um, which really ultimately, you know, played a huge role in saving Kyiv, uh, which was the Russians, you know, ultimate kind of prize. That's what they were going after um, with the kind of within three days, be able to take the capital, change the government. Um, but because of some of those preparations in advance, uh, they weren't able to do that and eventually had to retreat from Kyiv. And, you know, that brings us to where we are now, which is kind of a longer slog in the east and south of Ukraine. Yeah. And, and uh, before we jump in, into some of the what comes next component, uh, one of the things that was fascinating to me from your reporting and your series of reports from Ukraine uh, was about those early days and, and how there was uh, this perception that things would fall quickly, uh, that, uh, that President uh, Zelensky, you know, would, would flee or go into exile somewhere. Uh, what was it that kept things together uh, in that initial stand, and, and how did that impact the, the slog that we're now in? 
Yeah, I think Zelensky's decision to stay was a big thing. You know, it really did kind of um, the fact that he stayed, the fact that, you know, uh, the government showed that, okay, we're going to fight. I think that really sent a big message to all Ukrainians, but especially the military. Um, You know, in those first days, you had thousands and thousands of Ukrainians just, you know, signing up for whatever volunteer force they could. Um, You know, guns were just handed out with very little check. Um, I think if you had a passport, you could get one. Um, And, you know, those things really kind of played a key role that Russia underestimated Ukraine's kind of will to fight um, and in some cases kind of willingness to die fighting defending their country. Um, So I think that still continues, right, that uh, Russia invaded in part on this assumption that they would be welcomed, um, that, you know, there was support for um, a pro-Russian regime change in Ukraine. And, you know, the past six months have showed that was definitely not the case. Yeah. And as uh, I I know, one of the other factors, I think, in terms of maybe the miscalculations would be how the the West uh, would step in uh, and and whether or not there would be that kind of support and whether or not that support would hold over time. Uh, Just as you've gone through your reporting there, how does it seem to be holding uh, and and is it is it under threat of uh, of fraying at all, particularly for uh, many of those European allies who are now, you know, looking towards fall and winter uh, and that fuel uh, that they do get from Russia. Yeah, I think Russia tried to pick sort of an ideal time to do all of this, right? Um, it was after kind of this, you know, really kind of hasty pullout from Afghanistan um, at a time where maybe NATO unity was weaker than it had ever been um, following, you know, some frayed relations during the Trump administration, um, coronavirus pandemic. I mean, there were a lot of things going on, um, as well as a new U.S. administration that was kind of um, untested, I guess, in this regard. So, you know, I think Russia did assume that NATO was divided, uh, that the West was divided. Um, and that was going to play to their advantage. Um, and instead, I think what this war has actually done is really kind of re-strengthened NATO. I mean, now you've got Sweden and Finland, um, you know, joining potentially. Um, and kind of given this Western unity over Ukraine. Um, now, the weapon support in those early days um, was not very good. I mean, I think... The weapons even the U.S. was giving Ukraine was under the assumption that he would fall within three days, and they didn't want, you know, some weapons landing in the hands of the Russians. Mm. Um, But once Ukraine kind of showed, you know, that it was going to fight, that people were going to stay, that it was able to defend itself, um, and the military was kind of better than expected, we have seen, you know, a better tranche of weapons coming in since then. And I think that's going to continue, but I mean, six months there is a certain fatigue. And as you mentioned, for Europe especially, um, I think they take a heavier burden as far as, um, you know, taking in refugees from Ukraine and things of that sort, but less of a burden in, you know, the amount of security assistance as compared to the United States. Um, 
and now they're going to face a rough winter because of the reliance on Russian energy resources. Um, that's really going to test kind of Europe's support for Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, Isabel, before I let you go, one last uh, question. As as you've done this deep dive reporting, uh, what is it that you think we're missing? What is it that we're not having a conversation about here in the U.S., whether that's in, in Congress, whether it's the administration or whether it's the American people? What's the part of this conflict that we're that we're missing or that we should be thinking about maybe a little different or a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think we talk a lot about security assistance, you know, weapons um, that need to get to Ukraine and all that, and that's certainly important. Um, but Ukrainian officials that I've talked to are really concerned on the financial kind of aspect of this. Um, you know, just even having enough money to pay the soldiers on the front line um, because their economy has been so battered. Um, so I think that's one thing that kind of gets underplayed um, or talked about less, but also, um, you know, the aftermath of this to me is so completely unclear. Um, we have both sides digging in and it seems like, you know, negotiations are really at a standstill in the sense that they're not talking to each other at all. Um, and there is really no clear way out. Ukraine will not give up until it gets, you know, its territories back, um, to what it had before February 24th. And, you know, Russia is not just going to withdraw. Um, so you're looking at a very prolonged conflict. And I think the question for everyone is, you know, how long can this go? Um, how long can the West keep supporting Ukraine? Because it's important. Um, but also, you know, what does this mean if this is a prolonged conflict, in, you know, a prolonged war, really, in the heart of Europe? Yeah. Uh, great insight. Isabel Karshudian. Ukraine Bureau Chief at the Washington Post. Great deep dive analysis. And uh, we appreciate you joining us from Europe today. On uh, I know it's a, a busy time for you over there. And we appreciate your perspective and uh, your reporting out of Ukraine. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. All right. Again, uh, great insight there from the Washington Post. Really a good deep dive in terms of what took place. How was Ukraine able to withstand some of the early onslaught? Uh, and what does that mean moving forward? We're going to stay with the question just a little bit longer. Coming up, President Biden is sending another $3 billion in military aid to Ukraine. A nice Independence Day birthday present. Alexander Ward from Politico is going to join us next to continue this conversation about the role of Ukraine, what it will impact here in the United States and around the world as we move into the fall. Stay with us. Think again with Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com 
or wherever you get your podcasts.